I'm Dorothy Wickenden. On today's Politics and More podcast, David Remnick talks with Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They discuss her experience visiting detention centers on the U.S.-Mexico border, her relationship with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and her thoughts on the candidates vying for the Democratic presidential nomination. On June 25, 2018, hardly anybody had heard of a young activist recently working as a waitress named Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The next day, she pulled off a shocking win in a congressional primary for New York's 14th district, and she was on her way to Washington. And we've been hearing about AOC, and that's what we call her now, AOC, every single day since. Ocasio-Cortez had never run for anything and had no political experience before working for Bernie Sanders in 2016. Her election, as a young woman of color, was big news in New York and well beyond. And she's been in the headlines ever since. She battled Nancy Pelosi to make the Green New Deal a big priority. She attacked centrist Democrats who opposed it. She called for the abolition of ICE and recently referred to migrant detention facilities as concentration camps. She became the hero of the left wing of the Democratic Party and a favored villain of Fox News and the right wing, practically from the day she started. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez joined me about a week ago just after her tour of migrant detention facilities on the border. I think it's about a year ago that this all began. This, this big victory for you happened. And does the year seem like five minutes or 20 years? Um, a little both. It's hard. It, it kind of feels like both of those things at the same time. It, sometimes it feels like 45 years because each week feels like a saga. Um, but at the same time, it's it's hard to believe that. Yeah, it's hard to believe that it was just a year ago. So I guess it does in some feel longer than a year. But um, but also it's it is. It's such a short period of time, and it went by so quickly as well. Well, what, what shocked you the most? In but, this whole uh, year? Well, and, and, and holding this office and the political life once you're in office. I think when I first got into office after getting sworn in, I struggled with a large deal of imposter syndrome do I belong here? They're going to find out. <laughs> as soon as they find out, they're going to, Take you know, it back? Exactly. It's going to get taken back. Um, and so I struggled with that a lot. But after acclimating to the actual functions of, of this job and this role, I think uh, one of the things that has been shocking to me is how normal it is. Like the Normal in what sense? In how enormous decisions are made in ways that feel like a typical office sometimes, <laughs> you know? For example. Um, so there will be miscommunications or there'll be debates or there's that guy you don't like on the second floor or, you know, <laughs> things like that. And they, they, they all have real dynamics and real consequences in decision making. And, uh, you know, for example, you know, last week with the border supplemental, which was this big um, controversy both within the party but also nationally. And um, this is the conflict between the Senate Democrats and the House Democrats as well as with the Republicans as well. Right, right. And so the ways that that this 
very flawed and a supplemental, which I've personally voted against, um, along with many other members. Uh, the way that it came to the floor was like, what's going on? Who's saying what? And you're hearing secondhand about what might be happening and it kind of unfolds within 30 minutes and then before you know it, Congress has, has voted on $4.6 billion with no accountability. So, to so you're saying agencies. governing is a mess in a way? Ah, uh, yeah. It's a mess. <laughs> it's a mess. <laughs> well, when you came to Congress, did you have a plan how you wanted to be, what you wanted to push forward, how you wanted to communicate? I think... In, in some parts, how I wanted to communicate, yes. And, and I think for me overall, the plan was to try to expand our national debate and reframe our understanding of issues because I felt as though that was something that wasn't being done enough, especially on the Democratic side for, for Democrats. We don't know how to talk about our own issues in ways that I think are convincing. So we fall into Republican frames all the time. And we're too often on the defense. We're too often afraid of our own values and sticking up for them. And I feel like we run away from our convictions too much. And so one of the things that I wanted to do was to hold a strong line and redefine our values and remind people that I think what we need to be doing right now is coming home as a party. I, th I don't think we should be afraid of being the party of FDR. I don't think we should be afraid of being the party of working people. And it feels to me that at some point we did start becoming afraid of those things. We started, and became the party of what instead? I think we, we became the party of hemming and hawing and trying to be all things to everybody. And... It's not to say that we need to exclude people, but it's to say that we don't have to be afraid of having a, a clear message to say we believe in the human dignity of all people. We believe that health care should be a right. We believe that all people should be paid a living wage. We believe that as our economy evolves, it's time to expand public education beyond K through 12 to K through 16, K mm -hmm. through college or K through vocational. And um what we call kind of bold agendas or Republicans call socialist are things that they've always called socialist and wear it, understand that that's what they're going to say, but don't run away from the actual policies that can transform people's lives. Well, let's talk about the socialist issue. As I, I certainly was going to talk about it later, but we'll, let's get right to it. You were endorsed by DSA, Democratic Socialist America. You identify that way. And as does Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders recently gave a speech reaffirming this notion. And everything that he says sounds like t to me, and I know this is a constant debate, sounds to me like New Deal mm -hmm. Democratic Party values. And FDR always said, I am a liberal. Mm -hmm. I am not a socialist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do you... Well, I mean, I think uh, to me... How you wrestle with that term is relatively inconsequential with respect to the policy, right? So if you want to support free college and you say I'm not a socialist or if you say I'm a democratic socialist and you support free college, at the end of the day, we're supporting free college. And that's the thing that we should be focusing on. And I think for me, 
uh, particularly when it comes to democratic socialism, the key word is that small d democratic, is democracy. And so it's it's really about making sure that workers have democratic power in our economy. And um, for me, one of the reasons that I lean into it is because I think it helps people who understand those principles be able to understand our stances on issues across the spectrum, as opposed to saying, what is your stance on healthcare? What's your stance on education? What's your stance on on wages? In in having people understand my general paradigm and how I think about them, that my priority is for workers to have power in our economy, I, you can kind of almost predict where I'll land on an issue. And when I come out in favor of a position, it is within the context of that. So when you came to Congress, Nancy Pelosi, particularly on this subject, the notion of democratic socialism was, I would say the best phrase for it was pretty dismissive. That how, Were you very annoyed by that? I wasn't annoyed. Um, I think, uh, you know, with a lot of the dismissiveness that I've kind of encountered across the board, I'm not annoyed. I don't have a chip on my shoulder about it because I feel like I'm kind of going in with my eyes pretty open or as open as they can be given the context um, with the system that we're encountering, right? It's most Americans disapprove of how Washington, D.C. works, and they've they've disapproved of, of how D.C. functions for years. And now you're in the middle of it. You're in the thick of it. And you see it up close in a way that even the best reporters can't and much less citizens who are not spending all their day thinking about this. What have you discovered about the way Washington works that you didn't know before, good, bad, or indifferent? Um, I, um, I've been pretty shocked with the concentration of power internally, not just the influence that lobbyists have, which I think a lot of people kind of understand and see, but how the actual rules within Congress have changed over the years to put in, in I think, an insane amount of power in a handful of people within even just the House of Representatives itself. So we're talking about the House Speaker? The Speaker, Leadership, Committee Chairs. Uh, Congress used to function in a way where each member used to have much more power as an individual than they do now. And over the years, uh, the rules have changed to kind of consolidate power to a very large degree um, with the Speaker, with the Minority Leader, etc. In fact, Justin Amash, who just you know, resigned from the Republican Party, congressman from Michigan, made this same exact point when he decided to leave the Republican Party, the Republican caucus, rather. What's your relationship like with Nancy Pelosi? Tell me how that works. What are the dynamics of it? Um, it, You know, I think sometimes people think that we have this, like, we have a relationship. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Are you saying you don't? Not, not particularly not one that's i think distinguished from anyone else like uh if there's a legislative need you know the the last time i kind of spoke to her one on one was when she asked me to join the select committee on climate change um what did she say i said no <laughs> <laughs> why um because i had made very specific requests, which I thought were rather reasonable, 
um, for the Select Committee on Climate Change, I asked that it have a mission to try to draft legislation by 2020 so that um, so that we essentially have a two-year mission to put together, whether it's a Green New Deal or whether it's some sweeping climate change legislation that, w- that the select committee have a legislative mission. I asked for it to have subpoena power, which most committees do. The, mm-hmm. last, the last select committee had subpoena power, but now this one doesn't. And I asked for the members who sit on the select committee to not take any fossil fuel money. And none of those requests were accommodated, and so I didn't join the committee. Are you better on the outside looking in or the inside looking out? Where I, that's think, I think I'm better on the outside looking in on this issue. Why is that? Um, because given that none of those standards were met, sitting on that committee, I would have to own anything. I, I would take responsibility for anything that comes out of that committee. And when the, sh- the actual, in my opinion, the structure of it is compromised in very deep ways. You know, it's not, it, I don't think it was like, I'm going to take my ball and go, in, and go home. It's, we have a select committee whose mission I'm, I was uncertain on, uh, whose members take fossil fuel money. You know, it's, that it's beyond just a mere disagreement. I think there's a structural problem with it. And so, um, and there's plenty of other caucuses as well that work on climate issues. So I think um, I think that that ultimately I'm fine with the decision, especially given the committee assignments that I was ultimately given, which were very intense and very rigorous. I was assigned to two of some of the busiest committees and four subcommittees. So my hands are full. And sometimes I wonder if they're trying to keep me busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, how did Pelosi react when you turned her down on, on being on that? She was fine with it. She said, okay. Did you think on. you were being one way or another? Was she annoyed? I don't. I don't think so. She doesn't do annoyance. Yeah, I don't think. I mean, maybe she she does do slight annoyance, but it's not direct or indirect. I don't know. I, I think this is the thing where it's like, uh, first of all, I think leadership their their primary goal right now is making sure that everyone who won a swing seat comes back. So I think that that's where a lot of their time, rightfully, I think, justifiably, uh, is invested in in those relationships. I think there's one thing that everybody would agree on, including your most ardent opponents, is that in this year, your voice has cut through. It's cut through to, to supporters. It has certainly cut through to the Murdoch press. You're, mm-hmm. you're, you are big business for Fox News and mm-hmm. for the New York Post and all the, all the rest. How did it cut through? Why did it cut through? And was that the plan? It takes a lot to unseat an incumbent, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican. Um, It takes a lot because when someone is used to voting for the same person for 20 years, it just becomes um, a challenge of changing habit as well, which is very difficult. And so in order to make that argument over a year, while I had no money to amplify my message, when I had very little resources, very little uh, outside attention. I needed to, over the t- over the course of a year, year and a half, really hone in a very strong voice um, that cut through to the needs of my constituents. And so I think that after the primary, when a lot of people started to kind of uh, say, what's going on here? I 
continued in that same voice that still cut through to my constituents and to my district, I think there's a couple of things. One is that uh, there's there is kind of like an apologetic nature, I think, to a lot of democratic messaging is like this is wrong but not all people or but not all this and particularly freshmen and in particularly women even do you think that's the case well because I, it I seems like the strongest general. it seems like the strongest voices by leaps in this in this freshman mm-hmm. class are women and women of color yeah yeah well i think overall with the party that has been the norm but when it comes to um women of color in congress particularly the freshmen it's that we both have encountered and represent communities that have been auctioned off and negotiated off for the last 20 years. And we're over it. You know, if we're going to have a change election, it needs to... What do you mean by auctioned off? Well, we see in these negotiations all the time, it's like fighting for black communities or policies that help women. They're they're bargaining chips, and they're the first chips that are reached for in any legislative negotiation. Now, you have just come back from the border, and this was an experience that I think um, was disturbing on a number of levels. I just maybe talk me through that trip. What did you see? It just in human terms, what did you see? I mean, it was horrible. It, we went into this facility, and first of all— in, What town are you in? We're in El Paso. Mm-hmm. We're in El Paso, Texas. And we—our first stop, we met—we stopped, and we met with um, ACLU representatives. The second stop, we went to an actual shelter for children. And then our third stop, which I think was the worst, which is where we saw some of the most inhumane behavior, uh, was in—was the El Paso— Customs and Border Patrol what are you detention there? facility. So we walk in, and uh, that morning the ProPublica piece had been released. This is about the Facebook group of, of people who were working there and all kinds of abusive comments mm-hmm. and yeah, directed about, at you and others. Yeah, and there were 9,500 current and former CBP officers engaged in a secret, violently racist and sexist Facebook group. And um, where they mocked migrant deaths, where they uh, they actually discussed f- launching a GoFundMe for any officer that harmed myself or Veronica Escobar. And um, and so we get there. We sit down in this boardroom, and all these CBP officers are standing up around us. And another member kind of confronted them and said, well, what about this group? Are any of you all in it? You know, there's 20,000 members in CBP, and there were nine, this Facebook group had 9,500 people in it. And so... Um, so it immediately did not start off well. And um, and their excuses for the group were automatically very disturbing. What were they? Um, they're saying, we had no idea about this. We just found out about this. 10,000 members in this group and management and superiors are saying they had no idea about it. A few bad apples, I think was the phrase. Right. The and... Uh, and First of all, if you did not know that there are 10,000 members in a violent Facebook group, that either that you're either being dishonest or your management is terrible that you don't know about this. Um, so it's one of the two things. And then we find out later that they did know about it, that they mm-hmm. have known about it for years. So 
we find out, you know, in retrospect that they weren't being forthright with us. Then we leave it. You know, it was this whole argument. And then another member said, you know, they're trying to filibuster us in this conference room so that we don't see what's going on. So we go out we step out and um, we get into this main control room. And it's basically it's kind of a circular room. And the center of the room uh, was this kind of little perch with screens and with surveillance feeds. And then the perch kind of had a little wider sub perch on the outside and it was surrounded by glass. And that's where this is where detainees are living. This is where detainees are being kept. I wouldn't even call it living because it was that inhumane. Um, and then there were these cells all around. Inhumane because it resembled a prison? Inhumane because of the crowding? What were the conditions that you saw? It's not even living. So we, we walked in, and uh, in one of the cells, the cell is just all concrete. Um, so it's there were just women on a concrete floor, and then there were two concrete slabs where they could sit. And then in the back, there was a toilet and a concrete slab in front of the toilet, but no door. And um, and these women were just in these sleeping bags um, on the floor over each other. There's no way that they could all sleep at once. Um, almost no way. And uh, I mean... They were being it. It was, it was the physical manifestation of Trump's rhetoric in calling migrants animals, because that's how these women were being treated. Their hair was falling out. Um, they had sores in their mouth due to the lack of nutrition in the food that they were being given. Um, what were they being fed? They would wake up in the morning and. CBP would wake them up between 5 and 7 a.m. Um, and they said pretty much for no reason. They're being woken up very early in the morning, but they wouldn't take them anywhere. They weren't allowed to go outside. They're just being woken up. Um, in the morning, they'd be given kind of like a, a this one woman took out a Nature Valley oat and honey bar um, for breakfast. And then I saw two oranges on the floor. And um, they said that they would be given uh, sometimes a sandwich or a burrito, but no greens, no fresh food. And the lack of those nutrients develops canker sores. If you're just eating mm -hmm. bread for days and How days. How long have they been there? Uh, one woman had been there for 60 days. And these are people who had come from where? The women in the first cell were from Cuba. They were from Cuba? From, they were all from Cuba, Yeah. And so they're being detained there, and they separated um, these women. So th From their children? Yes, yes. Where are the kids? I mean, this is when all the women started sobbing and breaking down. You know, I went in there, and I just started asking questions. And when I was asking basic, we went in, and I in this cell was myself, Ayanna Presley, um, Congresswoman Madeline Dean, Joaquin Castro, uh, Joe Kennedy came in. So, so you and, and, and Castro are the, are the Spanish speakers here, and yes. you can communicate directly, and you're asking them what? So first I start asking them, how long have you been here? And, you know, I start asking these questions, and, um, and at first they didn't know what was going on. And so then I, I was like, you know, hold up, rewind. This is who we are. We're members of Congress. We know that there are issues in this facility, and we, and we need to find out what's going on. And that's when 
they just started bursting. They were almost falling over each other trying to tell me everything. You know, they took my kids over here. Um, I have two children here. I'm trying to find out where they were. They took me here. They, you know, they moved us there. And so, um, so first I started asking them what their day was like to understand their conditions from their perspective. I asked them who had been separated from their children in that room. Two of the women had their children taken away. But meanwhile, it's important to contextualize this, that family separation is more than just taking parents away from their children. What people are saying and what the administration is saying and qualifies as an unaccompanied child and, quote unquote, fake families or human trafficking, what they are talking about with respect to that are also um, children that come with their brothers and sisters uh, children that come with their grandparents, children that come with their aunts and uncles. And in Latino culture, Latino culture is extremely familial. You know, I was raised with my cousins as my siblings. I was raised with my aunts and uncles as secondary parents. And so my parents, it was not unusual at all for me to spend days with my aunt or uncle. And that's pretty much like a parent. Um, and so when when the administration comes and t- and says that a child with their cousin or a child with their uh, with their aunt or uncle is in, is unaccompanied, um, it's a it's a violation of of the actual spirit of what is happening. And so uh, so, anyways, there were but there were two women that were separated um, from their direct children, nonetheless. And um, and so I asked them where they went. And I also asked what some of the other facilities were because we saw all these empty tents. We went in here and in Clint, there were all of these tents that almost looked like dog kennels and they were just empty. And I asked these women, how many people are here? And they're like, there's no one else here. There's no one else here. And I said, well, why is there no one else here? We've been hearing that there are hundreds of people in these facilities. And they said they took them all away. And I said, when? And they said the day before yesterday. To where? And I asked them where, and they said um, two places. They dumped a lot of them in Juarez. So they took hundreds of people and just dumped them in the streets in Juarez, Mexico. And then they also took them, some of them, to Arizona, um, to certain CBP facilities in Arizona, which also um, have been notorious for poor conditions. Now, is that legal? For CBP to do that, Mm. it is. Um, you know, there's been there have been a couple of articles lately, and the, the saying basically that the cruelty of all this mm-hmm. is the point of the policy. It is. It is. What does that mean? The cruelty is the point, and um, and people like to, you know, a lot of folks on the right try to bring up Obama and say Obama did this, Obama did this, Obama did this. Do they have any point? Um, they have some points, um, but they don't have others. Obama never separated children from their parents. That's a violation of international human rights. Um, Obama never kind of took this into overdrive the same way that the Trump administration has. But Obama did pursue policies and he laid the groundwork on this whole idea of quote unquote deterrence. And deterrence is what has evolved into where the cruelty is the point. Because it's this idea that you can get people who are seeking asylum in the United States to think twice to prevent them if you inflict a little pain on them 
um, when they come. So the idea is if a family knows that they're going to be detained when they get to the United States, maybe they won't come to the United States. Maybe they won't seek asylum here. Maybe they'll seek asylum elsewhere. And uh, this policy of deterrence started under Obama. Just stick with with the border here. Vice President uh, Pence and Nancy Pelosi reportedly have some kind of handshake agreement about conditions within the detention facilities that you visited, the amount of time children could be held there, and and that Congress will be notified within 24 hours if a child in detention dies. Do you trust the administration to honor that agreement? Absolutely not. I I don't trust them at all. I mean... On anything? On... on Probably on anything, on most things, but definitely not on immigration. We Congress, I mean, this agreement is being struck at the same time that DHS is ignoring congressional requests for documents. We have been asking for documents about the whereabouts of separated children for months. We've been asking, where are these kids? Where are their parents? What are the conditions in these facilities? How are we... Accom- We've been asking D- the Department of Homeland Security for troves and troves of documents to help figure out the situation. And they have been completely non-compliant. They won't give us a shred of paper that helps us find these kids. My experience of you is that you don't say anything just by chance. You think things through when you tweet, unlike some other (laughs) government officials and other human beings. Um, You use the phrase concentration camp to describe Mm -hmm. these facilities along the border and I'm sure you didn't do it mindlessly. You, knew, you, you have a sense of history, certainly, where mm-hmm. the Second World War is concerned and, and Auschwitz and all the rest. Why use that phrase, knowing that it would be incendiary even to people, some people, who mm-hmm. might be inclined to agree with you? I think, I think one of the reasons why I found it important to use this term is because... This whole crisis and the treatment of migrants at our border has been this low-grade, static, background noise torture that has been happening in our country. And it has been getting worse and worse and worse. And then more accounts started coming out recently, court documents Um, very disturbing accounts from lawyers, from interviews. And then academics started to say these are concentration camps. There was an academic consensus on this. In fact, there was a a petition that was sent to me uh, and many others of I think 100 plus historians Mm -hmm. who objected to the Holocaust Museum objecting to your use of mm-hmm. the word concentration camp, mm-hmm. that you should be able to use such a metaphor. Yeah. And that number is now up to... 140, over, I think, or something like that. It, was, it, it started with 140, now it's at almost 300, mm-hmm. since, I think. And, um, and so this was not a term that I made up. We now had academic and historical support for using this term. And um, the way I felt was, well, if we have academics, historians, and people who study concentration camps saying these are concentration camps, then I believe them. I believe in the academic consensus. You, you're not comparing Auschwitz to the Absolutely de, de, yeah, not. To a detention Absolutely center. Absolutely yeah. not. And that, of course, is where the right has gone with it. But no, concentration camps are a 
to humanizing tool that have been used from authoritarian regime to authoritarian regime. One of the things that you've been saying, I think, for quite a while now, certainly every bit of a couple of years, is that ICE should be abolished. Mm -hmm. The answer to you often is, well, why not reform ICE? The FBI and the CIA came, came under tremendous fire, for example, in the 70s. There were the church hearings held in the Senate mm-hmm. under Frank Church. No one's suggesting the FBI and the CIA are, are remotely perfect since then. But there were a lot of changes. And those institutions were, you know, there's not a country on earth that doesn't mm-hmm. have an intelligence uh, apparatus, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, why can't that be done with ICE? Because the core structure of ICE, I believe, and and frankly, the entire Department of Homeland Security, you know, this was established by George Bush right in the wake of 9-11, right as the Patriot Act and all of these different institutions that were, frankly, very large threats to American civil liberties started to get established. And people sounded the alarm back then that these agencies are extrajudicial, that they lack effective oversight, and it is baked into the core foundational structure of these agencies. What does that mean? And so um, I think what it means is, for example, ICE is not under DOJ. It's under the Department of Homeland Security. And so we have now— Would you get rid of Homeland Security too? I think so. I think so. I think we need to undo a lot of the egregious— a lot of the egregious mistakes that the Bush administration did. Um, I feel— like we are at a very, it is a very qualified and supported position, at least in terms of evidence and in terms of being able to make the argument that uh, we never should have created DHS in the early 2000s. In the absence of a sane immigration policy, that's right. in the absence of um, a democratic majority, what is the answer? So there's a few. One is we have, I think as a country, Uh, a misunderstanding of the issue of immigration. We think of it as a standalone issue. It's like asking, what are you going to do about homelessness? But these are systemic issues. Once you're at the point where you are mitigating what is happening at the border, you are already dealing with the symptoms of a large amount of other U.S. policies. So, for example, a large contributing factor to the surge on the border is the fact that President Trump withdrew U.S. humanitarian aid to the North, to Northern Triangle countries. To Central America. To Central America. The United States, in my opinion, the United States has completely abdicated its responsibility and role in Latin America in that we are not acting like an equal partner or neighbor in the Western Hemisphere at all. We kind of just think of everything as just south of Mexico, and we treat it that way. And because of that, our largest interaction with Latin America is what happens at our border. And so uh, that's how it manifests in our country. In addition to greater foreign aid to Central America Mm -hmm. and abolishing ICE, what else would constitute a sane American immigration system? If, in fact, yeah. we're not saying we, we, we don't really need one, all we do is just let in anybody mm-hmm. who wants to come, which you, you don't seem to be saying at all, mm-hmm. what constitutes a sane immigration so policy? So I think, one, um, a sane immigration policy, we should not be using detention for people who have harmed no one. One of the big things that I saw when I was at the border was um, needless bottlenecks, and this is where it really seemed very much so that the cruelty is the point. This is not a lack of resource issue 
whatsoever. Um, it is there is a lack of desire to allow refugees, and there were plenty of American citizens that are trying to step up to the plate. American citizens that are saying, "We'll take a family in. We'll take." children in. They have sp- most of these children that come to the border already have sponsors. They come with phone numbers and they come with people in the country that are willing to take them in and um, and give them refuge. And we have a system that deliberately blocks those families from seeking and, and taking up Americans who want to give them refuge. Did you watch the Democratic Party debates the two nights? I watched the first one, and I watched parts of the second one. I wasn't able to catch the I'm second one. I'm sure you entirety. watched the relevant parts. Yes. What did you make of them? Um, you know, I thought, uh, you know, I, I I thought they were good. Um, I think the structure, the very structure of the debates, are flawed because they're so gigantic. Because they're gigantic, they're unfocused, and so as a result, it seems like they are kind of intended to be a clash of personality. Besides Marianne Williamson, who impressed you the most? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I think the debates offered really good performances from, I I know, I think there's a a large consensus on this. I think on the first night, um, Elizabeth Warren and Julian Castro really distinguished themselves. I think the second night, of course, Kamala Harris had a very large moment confronting uh, Joe Biden. Was she fair? Um, I think she was. I think she was fair. I absolutely think she was fair. Um, and I think this is—it's also part of a larger discussion in that um, issues of race and gender are not extra credit points in being a, de- a good Democrat. They are a core part of of the competencies that a president needs. We have to understand that. Our country is one of the biggest experiments in a multiracial democracy in the history of humanity. And if you don't understand the multiracial or the multi-identity part of a multiracial democracy, it can severely hamper your uh, your capacity to govern. You worked for Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think he did? Is he too old? I don't think that I don't think it's about being too old. You, you can't know? be too old in this situation. I think that. Um, I mean, we're looking at two guys. Let's let's face it. We're looking at two guys who going in, mm-hmm. going into the presidency, Biden and, and Sanders, they'd be older than Ronald Reagan coming mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. I think that. Um, so when it comes to age, I think age gets used as a proxy for capacity, and so I think. There are some folks that are of a certain age where you can kind of question their capacity. Who are you talking about? Um, I think Donald Trump is one, (laughs) is a perfect (laughs) example. Um, I don't think he's all there. Joe Biden? Uh, I think Joe Biden, his performance on the stage uh, kind of raised some questions with respect to that. Um, But I don't want to say just because someone is 79, they can't. Or shouldn't run for president. I, I don't want to use those proxies, that a number as a proxy for capacity. I right. think you have to assess a person's capacity um, kind of on a case-by-case basis. What, what makes Joe Biden not there for you? And if he were to get the nomination uh, or a centrist of any kind, mm-hmm. 
center left, whatever he's, however he's self-defining himself, but, but certainly a center mm-hmm. f- a figure in the Democratic Party. How should progressives behave? Mm-hmm. Well, I, and it's it's not just about being a centrist per se. It's when you are struggling to talk about segregationists in, and you err on the side of discussing them in glowing terms, that is a big problem. Um, I think struggling and talking about women's rights is a big issue. Struggling to convey respect for women in this day mm-hmm. and age is a big issue. I think, th- I think those are systemic issues like those are very deep those are not gaffes they are problems and um and so it's before you even get to where are you on public college and where are you on a living wage uh i think just like where are you on understanding the people that live in this country i I guess what his supporters would say and even you could make this argument is how do we all when you take somebody who's had a long career mm-hmm. and they were living in times of old standards of mm-hmm. speech, mm-hmm. Uh, political reference, mistakes, mm-hmm. when are they disqualified and when is that just part of the package? Because you're, you're 29 Nine. Mm-hmm. and let's say we're sitting here or somebody's sitting here with you in 20 years and you're running for president. <laughs> It's possible that you'll do everything perfectly for the next 20 years and make no mistakes, but maybe mm-hmm. not likely. Mm-hmm. How do we hold people accountable for old standards of, of the way people addressed each other, right. the way they were physically so, with each other in Joe Biden's case? So I think— Bussing, the, bussing itself was certainly an incredibly complicated mm-hmm, issue at the time. Mm-hmm. So I think um, number one indicator on this is does the person know how to apologize? Mm-hmm. And if you don't know how to apologize— for praising segregationists, then that's a red flag already. You know, because I think people are very forgiving on that. I think people understand Mm. that over the course of a career, as the country evolves, our politics will evolve. But if we approach past mistakes with defensiveness and just say, then that I think is an indicative, it's indicative of a problem because if you're defending a past position that the country has moved on from, then it's then it calls into questions for your judgment for the president. I, I totally hear you, but you know one pol- politician who never apologizes for anything and seems to succeed and thrive on that? Donald Trump. That's right. And that's why— Never but, apologize, never explain. Right, but do we want— No, but d- 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 do we want look at the that? success of mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. And, and there's success in it, but there's demagoguery in it as well. You know, just because demagogues have come into power doesn't mean we should model ourselves off of them. Now, you worked for Bernie Sanders. Can we assume that you are pro-Sanders in this race? Well, I'm, are you hanging back? I'm definitely pro-Sanders in that I want him to do well. I want him to succeed. But there are other candidates as well. You know, I think Elizabeth Warren's doing a great job, too. So, Did Kamala uh, Harris surprise you? A lot of people on the the left side of the Democratic Party were very tough on Kamala Harris, mm-hmm. particularly because of her role as a prosecutor mm-hmm. in California. A number of issues. One of them is her going on California television and saying, essentially, we should we should use the law against parents of kids who were delinquent and mm-hmm. didn't show up to school, mm-hmm. maybe even imprisoning them. 
Um, there's a lot of criticism of her mm-hmm. on that and other issues. How do you feel about Kamala Harris now? Well, with respect to her debate performance, I mean, she came at it like a prosecutor. You know, she drew on that experience. But could you see yourself supporting her? Uh, you know, I, I think it's still so early. And so and this this is one of my gripes about the debates as well, is that there was a push for there to be a, a climate change debate. And frankly, I think, um, you know, there was this essay in Jacobin about how all the Democratic debates should be themed. And I think Jacobin, the the so- socialist um, quarter, quarterly or monthly, mm-hmm. I, pick, I think it's a quarterly, quarterly, but it's online and it's 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 a daily on Twitter. So <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. So fair um, enough. so I think uh, I and and I agree with that position because you learn so little about a candidate's worldview when you try to address all the issues in one debate and in ten different debates. So uh, so my. My thing with with some of these candidates is that I feel like I know certain candidates' worldviews, whether you agree with them or not. I understand Joe Biden's worldview. I feel like I have an understanding of that. I feel like I understand Elizabeth Warren's worldview. Mm -hmm. I understand Bernie Sanders' worldview. There are a lot of candidates where I feel the jury is still out, where I don't quite understand their worldview. And some of them, I think, are... Can they do the job, right? Like Donald Trump cannot do this job. He cannot even just keep the trains running on time. There are plenty of people who can do that. Um, but I think for me, I, I, I want to understand more of these candidates' worldviews. Um, and when it comes to a candidate's past, when you qu- can't quite understand it or when it's not quite articulated – uh, yeah, and it is very early. You draw on a candidate's past to try to get a glimpse of what their worldview is. And, um, you know, I think that people were right to criticize that. I don't— In Kamala Harris. I, I think so. I think that is a past action that that should be criidized. Um, but what—I I, want to learn more about some of the Would you get behind Joe Biden—if if Joe Biden were nominated, mm-hmm. would you campaign for him? Well— we need to defeat this president. And so to the extent that I could be helpful in that, you know, I will do what I can. But I also know that and it, what I hope people um, really get from me, whether they agree with me or disagree with me, is that I'm going to give it to you straight in terms of how I see and assess an issue. And so... I think sometimes where people struggle is when other candidates endorse a Democratic nominee and they know everybody knows what the deal is. And so it seems like a farce. And so I would never want to do that. But I also know. So I would I I would organize in the best way that I know how without trying to to communicate to people something that I don't feel. Are Warren and, and, and Bernie courting you essentially? What are those conversations well, like? Well, what we talk about, what we talk about, and what we work on the most together is our legislative priorities. Uh, we we don't really discuss. There's no direct sense in those conversations of endorse me. Um, I you know I think I've had one or two, and with other candidates as well, um, not just not just those two. Um, but it's not like this constant pressure. It, pro- it has probably come up once. And? and I say I'm not endorsing anybody for some time. 
Um, you're going to wait till the nomination is 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 locked in. Um, I I don't I don't know if I don't know if I'd wait that long either. Um, but I certainly don't want to endorse anyone this year. You know, I I think we need to have debates. I think we need to have a national conversation. And also, I need to do my job. <laughs> <laughs> and so I've been working with with um, both Senator Warren and Senator Sanders. Senator Sanders and I just introduced legislation to cap credit card and, and all interest rates at 15% nationally. Elizabeth Warren and I are, are working on legislation. We've gone after Steve Mnuchin and, um, you know, and, and the Sears board for not giving people the severance and, and the pay that they need. And so um, we're, I'm trying to work with them on tangible wins uh, for people. We're talking within a very short period of time after a credible charge of rape. Mm-hmm. was leveled at the President of the United States. What do you make of that? And what should Congress's uh, role be in pushing this or discussing it? I haven't dug into what legal avenues we have in Congress um, with respect to that. I think, but I think we should look into it. Uh, I think we, if if there are legal tools we should use, I think we should consider using them. Um, I mean, it's just it's it's disappointing that the reason the president seems so immune from things that would have killed any other president's career uh, is because we expect so little of him, and we have accustomed ourselves to expecting so little of him that it's normal to have someone who's an accused rapist in the White House. You are, in many ways, a social media um, politician. You communicate well on social media. Um, people follow you in, into the... How many followers do you have now on Twitter? On Twitter, like... Seven trillion, I think it is. Four point something million. A lot bigger than your constituency. <laughs> let's put it that way. And and yet, and yet, and yet. It's it's a tough place to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, do you ever shut down from it? Do you ever say, I'm taking three days off, I'm not looking at any of this? Yeah, I do. I do. And also, I have guardrails like while I'm using it. What are they? So I really try not to look at my mentions a lot. That's like a huge kind of zone. Also, I understand how these platforms work, which helps me and my mental health a lot. Give me a hint. So, for example... <laughs> Uh, Twitter does not prioritize what is most popular. They prioritize what is most controversial. So the first thing that you're going to see is probably racist because that's the most controversial thing that you can lob. So they reward not just Twitter, but all these platforms, all these algorithms reward controversy. They reward racism. They reward sexism. And so uh, I already have a set expectation of what I'm going to see. I already know that... Um, political parties, the right, dark money groups pay for troll farms, Russia as well. And, and Do you ever get hurt by what you see or read about yourself on social media? Um, I get hurt when I read something from a person I respect. When does that ever happen? Um, so once in a while, a journalist, like if I read something from a journalist that like true that I feel just like doesn't understand the full context of the situation. Sometimes I'll be hurt or I'll be disappointed if I expected something better. But for me, being hurt is about 
disappointment. And so you only get hurt if you're expecting things that you don't get. And so like, I'm ex- I expect some people to be racist. I expect some people to try to hurt my feelings. So when they do, it doesn't, I, I, I don't mind at all. But when I expect something better of someone and they, and they kind of go another way, sometimes it, it does hurt. What's the biggest mistake you've made in the last year? Um, biggest. I'm trying to think. I mean, I've made a lot, but... What are they? I think, um, you know, right after the primary, I was kind of like lunged into this world that I was not expecting at all. And I think I came... It, it was really emotionally difficult. And so I kind of came to this understanding that um, that I had to make mistakes to learn how to deal with this issue. So I remember right after the primary, I, I, um, I had this interview uh, on the show Firing Line, and I, I talked about Israel-Palestine, and I kind of got coaxed into talking about this issue that I knew at the time I was uncomfortable discussing because I hadn't organized in my community. I hadn't met, I hadn't convened people. And I started uh, like speaking about it when I didn't feel confident speaking about it. And so, you know, I got pilloried and dragged and all this stuff about it. And I learned a really big lesson in how to handle issues and particularly policy issues that I haven't um, sunk my teeth into yet especially then it was like four weeks after i won my primary or something super early and i didn't have the time nor the resources to learn everything about every issue yet and now that i'm in congress there's a lot more resources and time to do that um, especially when you're not fundraising all the time so i think um learning how to talk about certain issues learning um do you have time to think it's, it's, I, I don't say that in, in – I say that in the best sense. It's so much is coming at you. You are the initiator of a lot. You've, you've decided not to be a low-profile prof, freshman by any stretch of the imagination. And this just it just doesn't stop. It's mm-hmm. coming at you. It's coming at yeah. you. It's coming at you through whatever means, texting, speeches, appointments, meetings, God knows what else. Mm-hmm. How do you organize your thoughts? How do you make priorities of – one, two, and three, and mm-hmm. say, you know what, I, I can't concentrate on five, six, seven. Eight. Yeah. Um, so in terms of that time, um, this is one of the reasons why I really relish my time in committee so much. And I relish being a lowly freshman on committee too. Um, I'm very fortunate to not have to, and to have built my campaign in a way where I'm not dialing for dollars for hours every day. No, and it's a real... But why should you be dialing for dollars? You've got, you're, you're not going to lose that seat in a year. I mean, in a, in a year, I, I feel confident in our re-election, but we have, we have a census and gerrymandering coming up. And when you are critical of people in your own party, it's entirely possible that in 22 I could get a spaghetti noodle of a district and you're going to be in Staten Island suddenly. And yeah, exactly. And so I think about that too. I don't think that I'm here forever. Um I don't take my seed for granted. Um but I I do spend a lot of but you know kind of getting back to the question when I'm in committee because I don't have to dial for dollars, I spend hours in committee 
And a lot of times it's thinking and learning about a specific issue, but I use it as a jumping point to think about other things too. And do you give yourself a, a, a break break? Is there something that you do for yourself so that you can... Um what do the kids say? Self-heal? Yeah, self-care. <laughs> self-care. I garden. I've discovered gardening, um, which has really been really rewarding. I won a, a little community plot lottery, and I didn't use my name. I used my partner's mm-hmm. name, so mm-hmm. I didn't get any special treatment, or I don't think I did. What, but, are, you, what are you growing? Um, so I've got, uh, I, I've got dahlias. <laughs> I've got collard greens. I've I had spinach, but now it's too hot for the spinach, so I'm I might plant some peppers. Add Swiss chard, which is really good. Sage, basil, um, and it's really healing. It is. It really is to just forget everything and just have your hands in the dirt. It's just really that's you know it's one of the best parts of my day. 